I don't suppose that anybody would have joined the IRA if the civil disorder in Northern Ireland you know, wasn't there. There were tremendous attacks on the Catholic population at that time, and as things got very bad, the old historic defender of the Irish people, the IRA, grew up very quickly in the ghettos, started seeking recruits and passing out guns. It's the ordinary normal story of a you know, young child growing up somewhere where the stage is set for violence, where the uniforms for young people are already designed by their elders. Right at the start of the campaign, my best friend, he was killed. He was the first IRA volunteer killed in action. And then numbers of other friends were killed and shot dead. And I used to listen to Rolling Stone records like you can't always get what you want, my old record player, thinking, you know, my friends have crossed the veil of death in some way. And I was looking into their eyeballs one evening and they were dead the next day. The majority were shot dead. I'm here, I'm left. You know, I have to match their sacrifice. Therefore, I want to do as much as possible before I go. I want to get as much damage done to the British and Ireland as possible. Two adults who failed to plant a bomb at a police target needed somewhere to hide it, and they called at my house and gave the bomb to me. I'd never seen a bomb before. I just asked them how it worked, and it was a fuse bomb using matches and stuff. During the night, I went to the target, planted the bomb, lit the fuse, saw the sparks, ran like hell, and there was a massive explosion across the city which was the biggest news ever. You know, the IRA was in shock that a 15-year-old managed this, so it catapulted me into a kind of prominence. Nobody wanted to work with explosives because many people in the early days were killed. I saw that as a way to be more extreme, and I volunteered for that. We graduated to truck bombs, and then to hit London, I developed these letter bombs. I was training people how to make letter bombs and, you know, in a very poor house in the Craigan ghetto in Derry. I was just showing somebody how I'd make one and I patted the envelope to say, that's it, we're done. And it just exploded. And I still remember, like, the video in my mind of what happened. You know, I just saw this rainbow of colours fast approaching my eyes and shooting past my head and then there was an enormous blast. I'd been moved to Dublin for some treatment and it was there that I was seen by sort of leaders and commanders of the IRA who wanted to see this kid who was making letter bombs and one of the very, very top leaders, a man, you know, written about in many books, Seamus Toomey, he said, look, you're a bit of a hero, we need somebody to volunteer a kind of self-sacrificial attack on London, you'll probably be arrested or killed. Do you want to go? I said, where's the ticket? So I was sent over alone with 500 bucks in my pocket and some detonators and explosives and began a bombing campaign that went for on and off for about a year and a half alone, you know. I might have exploded two or three thousand pound or eight hundred pound truck bombs and I could blow up a landmine underneath an army vehicle on the border, which I, I did. And like it might get two lines in a Sunday newspaper. But when I was sent to London, I sent quarter ounce nuisance letter bombs to 10 Downing Street and it became national and world news for weeks. London is moving tonight, but the IRA has proved again what power it can wield. Ladies and gentlemen, please do not interfere with any letters or packets. Are you at all worried about the possibility of letter bombs? Oh, I think it's absolutely dreadful because nobody's safe anywhere now. It was just incredible to sit in a small flat in London, living on, on air and uh, bread and water almost, and the radio stations were full of it, the newspapers were full of it, and we reached these people in their homes or offices in the heart of London, in the heart of Britain, and the way they'd sent 30,000 troops to harass our population back in Northern Ireland. 
Here we were taking the similar kind of argument to their streets and their capital city and saying, look, you can do it to us, we can do it to you. It was as nakedly simple as that, you know. When you're a young teenager, I mean, we were boy soldiers at 15 years of age, you know, probably child soldiers, really. You're very underdeveloped in many ways. Yeah, I was very proud. It's the same reason why armies want, you know, 17 and 18-year-olds, because they're too young to know any better and they'll do anything they're told to do. And you just realise one teenage IRA volunteer in London could wreak havoc in the city. People have always said to me over the years, what does it take to run a campaign to destabilise a city? It just takes one person. When I uh, looked at newspapers and they had photo fit or whatever, pictures of the baby-faced bomber, they were getting close to figuring out who this kid was. You lived in the hope that you would take out some British minister or judge or general or, you know, senior military officer, sure. For me, when I sent these letters to these prominent people, that I assumed that they would open them. One Irish woman was a secretary to a top uh, British Army uh, major. She opened his mail and she got injured. And it was this thing about innocent people. Like, we were fighting because many innocent Catholic Irish were killed back in Northern Ireland by the police and army. And here I was, masterminding a campaign in London that was injuring what I called at the time working-class English people, and, I, and including some Irish people. I expected to be cornered and shot every single day in London, you know. They raced in and got me at my home at gunpoint uh, during the ceasefire. I was thrown into a cell in the famous old police station in Derry and I saw the name of probably every other former IRA guy I'd ever known scratched on the wall and I thought, oh my God, they've all been here in the very same cell. And I scratched my name, uh, you know, in due course. And prison officers burst in my cell door at midnight, shouted at me, you know, are you that bastard from Derry arrested the other day? I said, yeah. And they go, well, uh, your comrades just shot dead a young police officer in response to your arrest. His father is the principal officer in charge of this prison wing that you are on. There was violent retribution on me, but... In my prison cell, as I was getting the living daylights beaten out of me or and being invited to hang myself, I could hear the funeral occur from the prison of that young police officer who was killed because I was arrested during a ceasefire. And I heard the police band play the marches that he was taken away. I saw the ceasefire breaking down around me. I saw the naked sectarian hatred on every side, and I thought, my God... So I fought a campaign for a year to apologize to my victims in letters of apology, but the government didn't want me to write them. The prison authorities didn't want me to write them because they didn't want any moral status attaching to some IRA bastard in prison or whatever. But apart from that, I wrote a letter to the press explaining my new manifesto to the IRA to call off the war. And I wrote it to the Derry Journal newspaper in my city, thinking it would be just local news. It became national news in Britain and Ireland and all the British newspapers. Well, when I finally got permission from the very reluctant prison authorities and government to be able to write letters of apology, half of them wrote back and said, you know, really relieved and happy. But then I'm afraid, well, just under half of the remainder went to Sunday newspapers and sold the letters to, you know, the news of the world. Prisoners tend to read more of the tabloid Sunday newspapers. The worst tabloid newspaper in Britain has always been the news of the world, and it had a huge headline one Sunday, which completely undermined me for years after. And it was, I'll never forget, anger as IRA bomber says sorry. 
So when the prisoners saw this, they thought, oh my God, here's some real rat who has started whinging an apology to victims and they didn't speak to me for the next eight years in prison. A lot of other prisoners came to me over the years and said, when we saw that headline, that you were damned for saying sorry, then we decided we'd never, ever say sorry, ever. Because you're damned if you do, and you're damned if you don't. I always remember reading somewhere that a great line of a general in the First World War, once at war to reason is treason. As I began to try and reason with people that this war couldn't go on forever, it caused enormous splits and difficulties within the IRA, so it ended up most people not even speaking to me in, among my comrades in prison. That's what, that's what conscience brought my way. You know, there were many courageous British MPs and churchmen who crossed the chasm between the British and the Irish, and they visited me in prison, you know, and worked on me for some years. And I've always been moved by the fact that more good was done by people crossing the divide and talking to the enemy than by war, war, you know. Sugar always caught more flies than vinegar. Shane was released from prison after 14 years and eventually helped to broker a lasting peace between the IRA and the British. You can find a link to his book, The Volunteer, on our website, snapjudgment.org. That story was produced by Anna Sussman. You are listening to Snap Judgment, and to hear more stories, visit snapjudgment.org.